0: You're listening to The Reversing Climate Change Podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change.
1: Hello and welcome to The Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and the creative editor there with me, Siobhan and Asa. Hello. Hi, hello. Hi, everyone. Hey, Asa. Uh, Asa Kamer, producer of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Siobhan Montoya-Lavender, uh, one of the co-founders of Thanks a Ton, which, by the way, you just had a beautiful website redesign. Good job. It looks great.
0: Thank you. Thanks. They were really pleased with it. There's a beautiful Charm Industrial Artwork photo on there you guys can go check out after this podcast.
1: Peter, you thought you were being on here to talk about Charm, but really, it's all instrumental <laughs> to serving Siobhan's <laughs> ends. So I hope is that okay? clearly. <laughs> great. Happy to be here. Yeah, that's Peter Reinhardt, CEO and co-founder of Charm Industrial. I'm really glad to have you here, Peter, because here, I'm going to put you on the spot. This is public information. I don't feel like it's revealing too much. I noticed on Twitter, you only follow a few accounts, one of which is our meme account. How is that oh. possible? How did you choose <laughs> to follow us of so of so many, the bounty of things online you could be following? Why our memes? Well, yeah, yeah. I think I have like
2: 30 something followers, which... Yeah. Proud of the ratio to to followers there. But um, yeah, yeah. I love niche memes. And (laughs) uh, I don't think this
1: qualifies as a niche meme.
0: You're our target audience then.
1: (laughs) Uh, How much would it be? Probably not much. (laughs) We debate about that sometimes.
0: I think my team laughs
2: at how much I repost the CDR niche (laughs) meme memes (laughs) internally.
1: We got to get more niche. I'm thinking now we need to just go hardcore into bio oil and just, and just really just right over the plate for you. Would that be something <laughs> that you'd be interested in?
2: You just pure bio oil memes. No, that'd, yeah. be, that'd be great.
1: I think so. Maybe we can even get to a point during the show of trying to figure out what might be a useful application of that. If you're listening, I swear it's not all memes. We're going to talk about the meat of what Charm Industrial is doing. I think. Are we? What? The, plant the plant meat. Plant <laughs> The plant meat of what we're the doing. The cellulose. Yeah. Well, Peter, maybe you want to start with uh, the beginning here of what is Charm? How did you get involved in such a unique CDR field? And yeah, tell us.
2: Yeah, so Charm, we're a carbon removal uh, company, first and foremost. And we let plants do the hard work of capturing the CO2. And then we take plant residues, so things like corn stover and forestry residues, things like that, uh, waste cellulose, and we cook it into actually natural smoke flavor that goes into barbecue sauce. Uh, so we go down into barbecue sauce, and then we inject it deep underground, which is where this takes an odd twist. Uh, and so once the barbecue sauce is underground, it's got a bunch of carbon in it, and it solidifies and, and so on. Uh, and so you end up with a permanent carbon removal.
1: I can't let you get away with this, though. Is this is this really the pitch that you give when there's investors or customers on the line? Yeah, yeah. Barbecue sauce related?
2: Yeah, just industrial quantities of barbecue sauce. That's okay. and, and when you inject it in Texas, it's tomato-based bio-oil. But when you do it in the Carolinas, it's vinegar-based bio-oil. Is that right? In-cities, <laughs> mustard-based bio-oil. The- yeah, yeah. No, but if, it's, it's true, though. If you look at like Sweet Baby Ray's on the back where it says natural smoke flavor, that's bio-oil. We don't make the good stuff. Like we don't make it out of mesquite or whatever. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but you know, we make it out of corn stover. We make it out of trash.
1: So many things just happened in my brain. And that was well done, Asa. I can't even hear the phrase sweet baby rays without thinking of the Mark Zuckerberg trying to appear like a normal human in the backyard with barbecuing and he just keeps saying sweet baby rays. And there's a super cut of him <laughs> just it over and over. This is why we need we need grown ups around.
0: We do, but you guys are a serious business. You are one of the big heavy hitters in CDR. I feel like your name is always at the top of the list with like, you know, you know the most exciting, the most scalable, um, getting the most funding, getting the most attention. What do you think of all the attention you're getting right now? What is something that you wish was getting more attention that isn't?
2: Well, I'll just correct one thing. We're definitely not the best funded uh, by, a, by a long ways. And in fact, we've never announced our, our, our funding, partly because we really wanted to put a focus on actual delivery. I think there should be more attention on how much carbon is actually getting removed and is it getting removed and where and by what mechanism. And, you know, in terms of permanent carbon removal, like very, very little actually has been has been removed. And anyway, so I I get a little worked up about actual delivery and like the real grittiness that actually needs to happen there to actually put carbon underground. Um, So I'd love to see more of that. I forgot your question, but.
0: Well, you've delivered ahead of schedule a few times now. So tell us about that. Are you just playing it cool so that people don't come knocking on your door being like, where's my carbon? Is it sequestered under the ground yet? Or how did you guys end up being early?
2: Yeah. So we are basically delivering by... We're taking an interesting approach to delivery. So we could wait until we have the perfect machine to make bio oil and the perfect injection oil. But that's not really how learning happens, right? Like learning happens by starting by doing. And so we have tried to find ways to just very, very quickly get out into the field and start getting carbon underground. So in 2021, that meant using a bio-oil lookalike compound that we could buy off the market that had a nice life cycle analysis and inject that. And then in 2022, we've actually switched supply chain to bio-oil proper and started injecting that. So we can start learning about the subsurface of both these things. We can start learning about logistics. We can start learning about all the formation geology issues that are actually weird and unique about injecting substances like bio-oil. Because people have made biowell for a long time, but no one has ever injected it until charm came along. Surprisingly, I don't know why, no one ever thought of injecting barbecue sauce thousands <laughs> of feet underground. You just can't so help. so, anyways, that has really accelerated a lot of our like subsurface learnings and of different kinds of wells and different geologies and has let us deliver true carbon removal. And we are now kind of switching into now that we've demonstrated that it actually works and you actually can put the stuff underground and and it stays there. Now we're switching into a mode of like, okay, well, how do we make a lot more of it? Like, How do we actually scale the production of the bio-oil so that we can put it underground? And that's leading us on a couple of different paths, buying off-the-shelf pyrolyzers so that we can practice 24-7 operations, pull forward capacity again, as well as designing our own perfectly fit-for-purpose machine that will eventually really help us come down the cost curve and and deliver things at a much lower price point. So we've kind of approached these things in, in a way that maybe seems a little less obvious, so that we can really start learning in production. I'd say that a little bit of this comes from my prior experience at Segment, where uh, you know, I originally was like, the only thing that matters is engineering and product. And go to market is easy. Operations is easy. Customer success is easy. Finance is easy. All this stuff is easy. But you, if you just get the engineering and product right... Of course, engineering and product is incredibly important for delivering. delivering. But it turns out those other things are hard too. <laughs> and I got my ass kicked a couple of times in this segment learning that one. And so now the lesson that I'm trying to apply and we're trying to apply here is like pull all of those things forward. Like start doing the 24/7 operations as soon as you possibly can even if uh even if the charm machine is not perfect. Start injecting with whatever you can get your hands on that has a nice life cycle so that you can start learning about the subsurface, etc.
1: I'd like to hear more about the details of, of how this works. I think most people listening have probably heard of uh, pyrolyzers and pyrolysis in the context of biochar. Maybe you can unpack how they could apply that learning here and, and how is it different? Can you walk us through a little bit of this life cycle that you allude to?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, any any pyrolysis system works basically similarly. You put in a biomass-based feedstock, so it could be wood or agricultural residues, and you heat it up to a couple hundred degrees Celsius. And when you do that, you're going to get two things out, basically. You're going to get a liquid bio-oil component, could be a vapor, and a solid char component. And the proportion of those two depends. If you heat it significantly, if you heat it very quickly, you get more liquid yield. And if you heat it more slowly, you'll sort of bake off the liquid and you'll get much more solid, solid char yield. And so you can play with that yield depending on the heating rate of the biomass. So in our systems, we're trying to maximize liquid. We heat it very quickly. It's going from room temperature to 500 degrees C in like two seconds. Whereas if you're trying to make char and maximize char yield, you're going to heat it very slowly. You're going to be at maybe 450, 500 degrees C, but you're going to do that over hours and hours and hours. And so that's really the only difference is, is uh, heating rate and the different reactors the designs that support that. But that char component can either be called biochar on the field, or it can be called charcoal if you go burn it, and pick your downstream use case. I've heard you say before, Peter, that you all don't, you choose not to sell the biochar with a carbon credit or use it for carbon removal. And I'm just curious why that is. And if it has to do with concerns about biochar, is there more research you need to see? Or is that like a sort of final decision that will always be the way you operate? I think it's probably how we'll always operate. But you know, I guess we'll see. The reality is that the permanence of biochar is not nearly as easy to prove. Like the permanence of biochar depends on soil temperature. It depends on soil composition. It depends on what microbes are there, in particular funguses. It depends on the exact feedstock. It depends on well, the heating. Like there's so many variables that go into, seemingly, into the permanence of biochar. Plus, you're leaving it at the surface where the, it's like uncertain even what happens at the surface. There's a lot more processes going on. You have erosion. You have all of these weathering processes that make it hard to really know what will happen a long time in the future, whereas biooil, being deep, deep, deep in the subsurface where things change very, very, very slowly, and there's not a lot of fast processes, we can make stronger guarantees about the permanence. And so we only want to sell at the extreme end of permanence. And so that's that's why we, we sell what we do. The the char that we produce, we, we do put back on the field, so it becomes biochar and it has an ash component. And in terms of our economics, we care more about that ash component in terms of nutrient replacement that goes back on the field. It's very important actually from an overall ecological standpoint and from a farmer economic perspective that that ash make its way back into the field that it came from. So that you and was close that. that just kind
0: of gifted back to the farms that you get your feedstock from, or how do you distribute that?
2: Yeah. Our anticipation is that eventually the farmers they have a real economic value that comes out of it, which is they don't have to do nutrient replacement. So it has a real cost savings for them to, to see it go back on. So I think we should see it flow through in terms of cost reduction in our biomass costs.
1: It's potassium, right? Yeah, so,
2: potassium and phosphorus. Yeah, and it's phosphorus. about a very small percentage of the nitrogen that comes out from like an NPK perspective, very small percentage of the nitrogen, about sixty to seventy percent of the phosphorus, the P, and then basically 100 percent of the potassium, the K. It sounds
0: like from your answer on biochar that like MRV, ease of MRV and ease of like actually measuring and being confident in your measurements is pretty high on your priorities. So right. How's it been proving out your MRV scheme so far? Like how's that gone?
2: So we look at kind of the traditional registries uh, first and we're like, great, we'll just like go do a thing with a registry of like Vera or, or gold standard or whatever. And then we discovered that that's like a two-year process that they take a 30% fee. That most customers who want to buy permanent removals, like don't really even believe that that stamp means anything because the historical offsets ecosystem hasn't been high enough quality for them to want to buy that stuff anyways. So then they're like, why would we do that? So we, we have taken a very different approach so far, which has been, first, we collaborated with the team at Carbon Direct and some others on developing a proto-protocol that documents how we should actually go about measuring all these things. Uh, and that proto-protocol is, is public on, on the site. And then we also have taken a kind of view of extreme transparency in our lifecycle analysis. So, I believe that from a permanent carbon removal perspective, we are one of two companies that has delivered anything so far. Climeworks and, and Charm being the, the two kind of permanent removal uh, pathways that have delivered something so far. Charm delivered about fifty four hundred tons last year out of sort of six thousand tons for the for the permanent carbon removal ecosystem overall. So we actually. Almost became one of the first that actually made a delivery. Mm-hmm. And we very quickly discovered that actually the, the customer experience of carbon removal is the MRV. Like they mm-hmm. don't actually see the activity, right? Like, <laughs> sure, you go do the carbon removal activity and you show up and you're like, we did the thing. Like, I remember being on the phone with Ryan Arbic, and I was like, hey, Ryan, like it's done. And he was <laughs> like, cool. <laughs> like, that's a super underwhelming experience, right? Yeah. Um, So we realize that MRV is the experience that the customer has. And so we, we need to really put a lot of effort into that. So for the 5,400 tons or so that more than that now that we've delivered, we, you can see it on the public website, tramindustrial.com slash registry. You can see every order that's been made that we've delivered against. You can see the full life cycle analysis for it. And you can kind of see like a FedEx style delivery history of like what happened when. To get to that delivery, and over time, we'll introduce more and more transparency there.
0: And, and for our listeners who are thinking, "Oh, 54 tons, what's that?" That's actually a, a really huge amount to have to have already accomplished, considering how nascent the carbon removal landscape is and the ecosystem of different CDR startups. Congratulations, because that is a, a serious achievement to have already sequestered 54
2: 5400 tons.
0: 5400 tons, yeah, yeah. But I feel like when we talk, we talk so much about like millions and gigatons. We talk about like scaling the industry so much. And I think there's a missing component where we're not like, but this is where the industry is right now. And 5,400 tons is worth celebrating. You know, that's, that's a real achievement. And so let's talk a little bit about scaling. Like, I mean, obviously your feedstock, I think gets touted oftentimes as like biofeedstocks are readily available across the United States and across the world, really. Um, so it seems like do you have any feedstock concerns or is it mostly about like shipping and, and injection well capacity and stuff like that?
2: I do think the biomass eventually becomes our rate limiter, but it's a really big number. It's like between five and 10 billion tons probably around (laughs) the world uh, every year. Like it's just, it's huge. So like, yes, it probably becomes the rate limiter at some point. But I think there's a very academic perspective on this, which is like, well, how are we going to possibly allocate all of the biomass? There's all these different people trying to get access to it. How are we going to allocate it? And I'm like, it's not socialism. Like (laughs) capitalism will sort it out. It will get allocated. The highest value use case will win. But there's a lot out there and almost none of it is used today. So like just corn, just corn in just the United States is a hundred million acres per year currently. And that is 400 million tons per year of corn stover, which represents 600 million tons of CO2.
0: So much corn.
2: So that's a lot of corn.
0: And yeah. That, we are that, really into corn here.
2: Yeah. And we like suck that 600 million tons per year out of the atmosphere and then it rots and returns to the atmosphere quite quickly, like within a couple of years. So every year you roughly have that amount of CO2 kind of just like turning over, turning over, turning over. So if we just took that sort of the sustainable portion of that corn stover to prevent erosion and other issues, then you end up with like hundreds of millions of tons of CO2 removal capacity just from corn, just to the United States. And then you start spreading it across all the other crops and all the other countries and, and so on. And you pretty pretty rapidly get to some very big numbers in terms of potential size.
1: And you think that... In the future, you will be able to pay a price that will be most attractive to sellers.
2: That's right, and there's there's two reasons for that. One is we actually don't view bio oil as just being applied to carbon removal. We think of that as the first market. We think of bio oil more as an intermediate that allows biomass to be accessible. So people don't really think about this, but if you if you actually look at how is biomass distributed, it's be very diffuse. Like on an entire acre, there might be two tons that you can remove from it. Like that's like nothing. That's like pixie dust sprinkled on a field. Like it's not much there. So if you want to build like a big central facility and try to like vacuum up everything locally and transport to that big central facility, you pay a fortune in transport costs. You have to do raking on the field. You have to do bailing. You have to stage the bales to the edge. You have to load the bales onto a truck. You have to drive the truck. You have to unload the truck. And it becomes stupid expensive. So basically building large central facilities, it doesn't pencil, which is why Beck's like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage is like not widely deployed. As well as cellulose ethanol, like all these costs ballooned and there's been like bankruptcy after bankruptcy after bankruptcy as people realize that like biomass transport is really fucking expensive. So the, we think that the solution is to do the conversion on field from this loose leaves that are pixie dusting across the farm into a pumpable, dense bio-oil fluid. That can be taken by truck and so then you have a like pumpable fluid form of biomass that you can that you can use in of general places and um the first application of that is pumping it underground as carbon removal but the second application which we think is even bigger potential impact is gasifying that bio oil into something called syngas carbon monoxide and hydrogen and using that to reduce iron ore to iron and out of that you get a co2 stream that you can still sequester. So you still end up with all the carbon removal impact, but you end up with one to two tons of reduction along the way. So you like double or triple the, the CO2 impact. So that's where we want to go eventually. And you imagine like the economics playing out of like you saved a bunch on the biomass transport and you get two co-products of carbon removal and iron. That's why I'm not worried about biomass supply in
0: the Well, first of all, let me just jump in because you did say truck. Do you mean truck or rail? Or is it like truck to rail? Or is truck, are you going to be so close to injection wells that rail is not applicable? Or... What's the deal with truck versus rail? Transportation for the actual bio-oil.
2: Bio-oil, biomass always goes by truck, never by rail. Okay. Rail is best for very heavy loads going long distances. It's possible that we could have some going by rail to an injection well, but the injection well geology that's appropriate for bio oil injection injection is, is quite flexible. And so that means we can probably have wells within pretty short, very drivable distances. For an iron-making facility where you're bringing bio-oil, that might be by rail.
1: How close are we to this modular vision of bio-oil uh, production?
2: That is probably where most of the engineering challenge for us lies, is how do we take a chemical plant and turn it into a reliably operational piece of farm equipment, basically, which I don't know how many people have like made like farm equipment-sized chemical plants. It's definitely... A, we don't have a lot of like, prior... That's like... Develop. We see the
1: looks on our faces, right? We're all like, this is zany <laughs> as hell. But... Uh... <laughs> I mean, we have one in the backyard. <laughs> yeah. So that obviously that's like a very early prototype. I imagine it was quite expensive. Although farm equipment is also like half a million up for many of these units anyway. So I don't know if you're able to get it within a ballpark of a combine, but is that kind of the goal?
2: Yeah. Yeah. The current machine, I mean, we're pretty open about this stuff. Like the current machine is about 2 million bucks and you know, as any prototype has issues with reliability and, and, and so on. The, and like, Bottlenecks on performance and so on. So, as we iterate on that machine, we expect that all those sort of performance, reliability, and so on will go up, as well as the cost should come down very dramatically. Like that one point, or roughly two million, is like inclusive of labor costs to build it by the engineers who designed it in San Francisco.
0: So this is <laughs> like
2: you know, if you want to make an expensive piece of machinery, this is how you do it.
0: <laughs> do it in the bay. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: So long, long term, we think it'll get down to maybe like two hundred and fifty k. There's nothing crazy inside of it. It's a bunch of pipes and reactor vessels and stuff like that. But getting that configuration exactly right—that's the trick. How much space, like, how long will it be able to run for before the bio oil that's made within it has to be like distributed to a truck or like how many acres can it cover before it has to go like unload the the bio oil it's made? That's a good question. That's probably an optimization that's yet to come. Um, the current one operates like field edge or or like pad nearby the field. It's not in the mobile form factor yet. You need a pretty like reliable, steady, smooth process before you want to start having it also bumping across the field and picking up biomass in real time. Yeah, sorry, I haven't done the math
1: on that. Are there people out there trying to make your vision work, but within a centralized paradigm?
2: People have been producing bio oil in a centralized version per, for a while. The typical deployment is like a hundred to three hundred ton per day pyrolyzer at a sawmill because they have a bunch of sawdust and they don't know what to do with the sawdust. So they convert it into bio oil and they ship it out for like burning as an industrial industrial heat production or, or things but like not that. Not
1: for carbon removal. Um,
2: yeah. No, I mean, well, Charm also now has a patent on bio oil based carbon removal by, by injecting it. But yeah, I mean, the idea is only two and a half years old. Like my co-founder, Sean, thought of it. We had we had like a couple pints of bio oil and he was like very studiously trying to figure out how to get rid of it in the right way. And his options were either this is before he had the idea of and, and he was trying to figure out, you know, what's the right way to dispose of this? We could either incinerate it or we could send it to a disposal well. And then he was like, wait a second. If it goes down a disposal well, isn't it removed? So that was the that was his big breakthrough. thing. That's amazing.
1: I want to ask about the intellectual property angle of this. Is it now impossible for anyone but Charm to inject bio oil underground?
2: it's not impossible it just requires a conversation with us basically
1: huh not not to be be prickly but why why do it that way like why yeah yeah like what's the good for the world and yeah
2: yeah yeah it's a good question but it has it has a good answer i think so if you look at what does it take to scale something very very quickly right scaling something very very quickly is actually proportional to margin So if you have a fast payback period on a machine, or you have a fast payback period on a thing, you can pay off the equipment faster, which means that you can recycle the capital into building and deploying a new one. So from an impact perspective, you have to trust us on it. But from an impact perspective, if you can pay it off faster, you can scale it faster. And so that's the risk actually is that if everything commoditizes, you actually can't pay it back faster. And so then you actually draw out the timeline for being able to deploy it rapidly scale. That's the that's the actual risk. But I don't know. We haven't no one has ever approached us to even like talk about, hey, we'd like to deploy this. No one has ever tried to do the thing. So we haven't actually been had to think through fully the question of like if someone else wanted to do it, could they do it? Like would we just license it to them, we give it away for free? I don't know. We haven't really thought through that question.
0: Like, there's a lot of questions around IP in carbon removal right now that's like still getting sorted out from a number of different methods. You know, I feel like anybody who comes up with an IP, it's kind of how do you, how do you, what do you do then? You know, in in other businesses, I think it's very clear you like protect your IP. And I think in CDR and and climate solutions in general, it's a little more murky. Yeah.
2: I mean, like, if you just look at what happened with direct air capture patents over the last year, it's like hundreds, hundreds of direct air capture patents were filed in the last year. And coming from Silicon Valley, like we, we didn't file a single patent at my prior company I don't think there's just not a thing like we were open source with everything what i found is that there's significant defensive value in in having a patent giving freedom to operate and like negotiating chips for freedom to operate so and that that's unique to the hardware hardware world and the oil and gas world and and, and so on i think it's a it's a much more IP litigious world and something that honestly, I'm getting used to. Whereas like my preference would be just like open source a bunch of stuff. And like, we're just going to go fast and do well by going fast anyways. So.
1: Cool. I, I have similar instincts to you too. Where like I would much prefer to operate in a world where there's open source and there's competition and there's ripping on ideas and people aren't blocked by in progressing farther because of IP, but also You do have a business to run, and I'm sure you have a fiduciary responsibility to your investors to deliver value, and you think that the scaling will take place at a faster rate were you to protect your IP. There's also a risk that someone else will patent a similar idea and then block you in the process, too. So it is a properly defensive act in some ways as well, but your heart is also in the more open source ethos. That's a hard line to walk, but I try to walk it too. Is it comfortable for you? You feel happy with that balance? you
2: <laughs> No, I'm like, I'm like not at peace with the, with the way the <laughs> hardware is- world
1: operates at all. It's
2: like, <laughs> yeah.
1: I love that. I, I find it to be a very respectable attitude. And I also feel yeah. discomfort with that. Thanks for letting me poke you on that. Has anyone ever asked you such a direct question on that?
2: <laughs> Privately. Sure. I don't know other a little podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Leave it to Ross. I also think
2: it's like an unanswered question. Like, I don't know what the right answer is. Like, is yeah. there, I, th- I, I feel like the right answer for the world is like, whatever it is that we'll get to the maximum amount of carbon removal as fast as humanly possible. Like, I feel like that's the actual right answer for the world. And the question is one of judgment then of like, what's the right way to do that?
0: Well, and I think I, it's I good know, to lean an into answer. like the, I don't know answers in CDR, you know? I feel like a lot of times yeah. in CDR, we get pressured to say, well, this is this is the answer. This is the clear, you know, this is the clear measurement we've come up with or something. And sometimes it's like, well, the like technology readiness level is low and MRV is just getting started. And we don't know um, the various various methodologies. And so I think that's a good just to lean into the discomfort sometimes. I don't I don't know.
1: The debates over IP also end up feeling somewhat arbitrary unless you think there's some abstract deontological right to your ideas seemingly it should be that you either own your ideas for basically forever or your lifetime or not at all. And everything is open source entirely. And the fact that you're already downstream from there being like, well, it's some period of years that should be empirically proven to benefit some sort of outside goal means it's going to feel somewhat arbitrary, no matter what you choose. And I think for a lot of people that, that rubs us the wrong way.
2: The biggest thing that I care about for charm is just freedom to operate. Like, I don't actually know how this would net out in a, in an actual decision, but like, if you want to compete with us, like game on, like we will, <laughs> we will just out execute. And that's, that's, I think where our head is at the most, but we haven't, we haven't been tested on that, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. You just, you just laid out the, uh, the dinner mat here. <laughs> come on, come yeah. eat, our, eat our lunch.
0: What's going on for you this month? What's happening in October of 2022? What's going on? What are your challenges? What do you need help with?
2: October 2022, we just opened our new Colorado location uh, in Fort Lupton. And we have a couple people that will be moving into that office from our leadership team uh, new head of finance and head of our gasification team. So we're just spinning up that office. We need to hire field engineers, and field operations, and site operations. We're going to have a lot of activity there pretty soon. We're going to be basing our biomass engineering team, so processing biomass, picking it up off the field, as well as gasification, so the, the iron making. Uh, work stream, it's gonna be based based there, as well as a bunch of like testing, testing of, of pyrolysis. So we're super excited about that. But that's a that's a big area of growth for us. It's, it's, it's like a 30,000 square foot warehouse with a couple acres outside for testing.
0: How how did we go not circle back to the gasification question because you laid that all out for us where you should have seen all of our faces on this call. Let's circle back and tell us a little bit more about your plans for this gasification project, and even doing like even maybe doing some capture and injection. And like, tell us more.
2: Yeah, the I mean, again, the like model here is do co-products where you co-produce iron and carbon removal. We are basically in a phase where we're doing a bunch of R and D on that on that core process. We've we've demonstrated to our own comfort uh, to know that it will it, it will work, but like dialing in that process such that we can start doing incremental scale ups is of the gasification system is basically where we're at from an engineering perspective our goal is to get as fast as humanly possible to like a you know million ton per year iron making facility but that's a long ways out
0: you know like i mean that's
2: a million ton per year iron making facility is a small one uh, which is you know bananas u.s u.s national steel production is like 80 million tons a year 30 million of that is virgin iron so like iron that is from ore. Yeah. And that 30 million tons would require 25 million tons of bio oil uh to produce, uh, which is like 50 million tons of biomass, which you know is like whatever, 25% of, of the corn stover that's sustainably sortable. Yeah, about 25%. So like it's very doable. Like we could just produce all of our iron domestically with with corn stocks. But uh, actually getting to deploying that first plant, you kind of work back to the Gantt chart of like, you know, say we want to deploy by the end of the decade as like an arbitrary goal. Like, shit, we're kind of late, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So deploying one of these things is a long, uh, a long road that we're getting started on in parallel to building the bio-oil production capacity.
1: Do you think among the more durable forms of carbon removal, bio-oil is going to be the most favored in either the short, medium or long term? Relative to DAC or mineralization or something else,
2: Uh, we're going to need them all, and I think that's very clearly illustrated by just like if you look at the natural caps. Director capture is unique in that it's almost arbitrarily scalable, right? Like, sure, it relies on renewable energy, which is somewhat capped. It relies on maybe like steel to build some of these things, but in some ways, it's like it's a backstop in that you can theoretically build arbitrary amounts of it. Most of the others have caps that are. In like natural systems that just like exist at some scale, like biomass turnover, like a, there's just X amount of biomass, and it can be maybe a very meaningful chunk, maybe even maybe even the majority, but it probably can't do it all, since we're probably going to need 10 to 20 billion tons, and maybe we can do five to 10. And so, regardless, you're going to need all of these others. You're going to need ocean alkalinity enhancement. You're going to need enhanced weathering. You're going to need biochar going to soil, even if it's even if it's more temporary. You're going to need so on and so forth. And if you stack up all those natural solutions, there's still good, probably going to be a chunk that needs the backstop type of, of director capture. So I don't know how those dynamics are going to play out in terms of timing, but I think the end state is going to involve actually a bunch of different technologies.
0: It's a good answer.
1: Was it coincidence that you ended up in bio oil? It sounds like your co-founder just had like a nutty idea. Is there an alternate reality where that didn't happen and you're working somewhere else in carbon removal?
2: It's possible. I think... We were really aiming at industrial decarbonization. We were really aiming at decarbonizing iron making and ammonia production and, and all these other chemicals because there's just like very little, very little going on there,
0: yeah.
2: which is actually quite scary. And that's why, we, that's why we got into that originally. It was like, okay, well, how do we make syngas? Syngas is the basis of a lot of these industrial processes. Like, how do we make syngas, carbon monoxide and hydrogen from something renewable? And biomass is a pretty compelling source for that. So that was what led us to biomass gasification originally. And with biomass gasification, we eventually after two years ran into the problem that like, it doesn't work to transport the biomass economically. And then had our first kind of big, oh shit moment. Maybe this doesn't work. And then my co-founder, Sean had his first insight, which was let's not transport the biomass. Let's transport this bio oil stuff. And that was the first breakthrough. And we were like, great. This works at scale now. Like economically, this is awesome. But how do we get down the cost curve? Like, how do we get down the cost curve to where it's cheap enough to compete? where bio is cheap enough to compete with natural gas or coal and iron making. And then it was a few months later that he had his putting bio oil down the whole light bulb moment where he realized that maybe carbon removal was that introductory market.
1: The feedstock that you will be using, especially as you scale, the alternative uses of it, what would change with soil fertility by taking some of the stubble out of the ground in croplands? Or is this currently fed to livestock? What would change if you were successful?
2: So the baseline is that the corn gets cut at harvest time, and it lies lies on the field. And for the most part, it sits there. And it can either be one of two different practices. It could be a till where it gets tilled into the soil, or a no-till where it just gets left on top. Either way, the vast majority of that carbon goes back into the atmosphere. So regardless of the baseline till no-till, you should basically like 90, within a few years, like 95% plus. Of that, of that carbon is back in the atmosphere. And whether that carbon lands in the topsoil or subsoil is somewhat modulated by till no-till, but uh, some of the most recent data that I've seen suggests that actually the total net carbon deposited doesn't really matter, It actually, doesn't actually differ really that much between the two. You have a bunch of other effects beyond carbon in terms of like NPK nutrients, so nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, other micronutrients, and you also have erosion. So no-till is very important in that it protects the soil from erosion. So that's kind of the baseline. If we run our mature process through this, where we are picking up a portion of the corn stover, not all of it, but a portion, call it 50 to 70%, depending on the situation. We're actually leaving enough corn stover there to protect the soil from erosion and ensure kind of like the microbe health and, and stuff like that. And out the back end of the process is coming the biochar with ash. So all those nutrients and micronutrients, the NPK and micronutrients are going back into the soil. Via like anhydrous shank, for example, so they get under the soil where they'll actually be retained. So in that loop, you're basically the only thing that's really leaving is the carbon that would have rotted and left anyways, and some nitrogen which has to be replaced.
0: Maybe we can get some feedback on some of our. our do we a good bio oil means locked and loaded that we can get some some critique on?
2: There's gotta be there's gotta be something around barbecue sauce.
0: Well, now there will be. I guarantee you that now there will be. We actually did make. I made a. A meme specifically for Charm that we're gonna tag Charm. Oh, wow. Did we send that one out? It was one of the, uh, it was one of the Tom Haverford ones.
1: We should do it on the day that this is published.
0: We should. We'll do That's that.
1: One. She she nailed you good, Peter. I don't <laughs> think you guys would have been so good. The well, one you, you can it preview to it or not.
0: <laughs> yeah. We should give him a preview. I don't. Know. I'll, I can pull it up. But basically, did you watch Parks and Recreation back in the day?
2: Sure.
0: Let me pull up. And Tom Haverford is always coming up with these zany ideas of like struggle suds like struggles in your dish soap or whatever it is, you know? And so oh, we're yeah, like yeah. sorry, I had to look up we... who that
2: was in the character.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's um it's these on side. Yeah. And so we were like, okay, well what, what are some like kind of zany carbon dioxide removal they that can sound hmm. really zany, but are real ideas. We started with just like ridiculous things, but then we're like, you know, some carbon removal sounds ridiculous. It sounds so far fetched and magical and and yet it exists. Yeah. And so we're like, how can we you know, kind of great memes around this idea of like real companies that do real things, but sound really far-fetched. And hang on, let me pull one up here.
2: Pumping barbecue sauce underground is a perfect for
1: that one. <laughs> like, yeah. come on, which, which like CEO coach, fundraising coach did you have? Is like, that's the pitch. That's the one, right? <laughs> The one that... <laughs> now, you know,
2: what I, what I found is that a lot of people, I'm like, oh, we pump bio oil underground. I'm like, why are you pumping oil underground, man? Burn that shit. And it's like no 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 no. like ah god the word is just like it doesn't have that much energy in it but then it's like into this really weird technical discussion and so i'm just like yeah it's barbecue sauce people like oh okay so it's like safe because i could eat it and it doesn't have any energy in it because you can't burn barbecue sauce so like it like just answers all of the like auto answers all of these follow-up questions that are annoying
1: the term bio oil is also really indistinct too. I feel like, what exactly does it mean? Obviously you've explained it here. Oh, okay. Siobhan has it now. Go ahead.
0: Okay, I have it up. Should I read it or should we let, let people stew on it? But basically, <laughs> we can cut this. Great <laughs> thing We sell the service removing too. CO2 and storing it back in the ground as oil. Yeah, put it back. Nobody likes climate change. We don't do the work of removing the CO2. Good, I hate work. We let the plants capture the CO2 and charge $600 a ton. <laughs> <laughs> that was Jean
1: That's a good one. A yeah.
0: well, Jean-Ralphio exchange with... Uh, did with design, sorry.
1: Why didn't we publish this? I, did, we, did, did we just do... Sometimes the ones we do in, in series like this, Peter, I think people get... are like, all right, we've got enough of this. And I think this is one that was deep enough in the series. that is that what happened? That's my memory of it, at least. I think so, yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen anything in this meme format. Okay, well, Peter only follows, as he said, something like thirty people. And if he didn't see it, then I think it's safe to go. I,
2: again. I read, I read everything.
1: <laughs> everything <laughs> everything in my Twitter feed. Wow. Yeah, it's like thirty-seven people. We right, we'll,
0: we'll, we'll ship that one out to with this podcast.
1: That's yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for being here with us, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Links to all those things are in the show notes. Super fun having you. What Charm is doing is really impressive and fascinating. You cracked us oh, up with your with your vision multiple times, which does not always yeah. happen when we talk with yeah. founders yeah. or CEOs. So kudos. That's
0: true. Good yeah. luck in Colorado. Awesome. Exciting, exciting new endeavors there.
2: Thank you. Yeah, and if you ever get clarity on the IP thing, shoot me you a note. Know?
1: Yeah, if I I solve that long-running, centuries-old debate in philosophy and political economy, I'll let you know. Yeah, (laughs) I I mean, I I do think,
2: yeah. And also in the specific case of CDR.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Check out some of the links in the show notes, make you think. Check out some of Charm's material. They they published uh, a very nice document um, revealing how they're doing their MRB and thinking about it in the future. And uh, thanks so much for listening and have a lovely day. you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.